This episode of Security Management Highlights is brought to you by Dataminer, providing the fastest, most relevant alerts on emerging risks across the world. Visualize real-time information at the level and specificity needed to quickly contextualize, understand, and respond to high-impact events as they unfold with Dataminer Plus's new advanced geo-visualization capabilities. Learn more and book a demo for yourself at dataminer.com. D-A-T-A-M-I-N-R dot com. And visit Dataminer on the floor at GSX at booth 3825. Some uh, demographers call it the fourth turning, but we need to embrace this and, and bring everybody in and get, you know, rising tide raises all boats, I hope. And we can't afford to lose anybody in this transition to keep them safe, happy, and productive in the metaverse or in Web 3.0. Welcome to this special session of Security Management Highlights from GSX Atlanta. I'm your host, the security guy, Chuck Harold. Amanda Lewis is a platform policy enforcement investigator, and Scott Walker is a threat mitigator, board member, and advisor, and protection futurist. Ms. Amanda Lewis, Mr. Scott Walker, welcome to Security Management Highlights at GSX. Thanks. Great to be here. Great to be here. Now, today's topic is what does trust and safety in virtual reality mean? That is a pretty amazing lecture you're going to give on Tuesday, September 13th. And, you know, first thing that comes to mind is, uh, you know, artificial intelligence. It's all kinds. I've been accused of being artificially intelligent, but I don't think that's what they mean. I think it means something different. So <laughs> it's going to be a really interesting conversation. Uh, what are some of the security challenges presented by VR? I mean, by the own definition, it's not actual reality. So it's very hard to define what trust and safety means, isn't it? Amanda, let's start with you. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I, I know that virtual reality is still relatively new and developing, but I think any of the challenges we see today in extant and established media is fair game to be a challenge for VR. Um, the difference now is that we have the opportunity to leverage lessons from previous uh, social media, internet, um, and things like Second Life, like uh, games like Second Life, to be able to b build security mindfully into VR as we create these new virtual worlds together. Um, so we're looking at anything from bullying and misinformation to phishing, theft, piracy, uh, conspiracy, and more. Scott, what do you think? Yeah, I, I agree with what Amanda's saying. And, and I think I'll just add that the anything that can happen to you in the real world will and does happen to folks virtually or online. So what we see in current, what we'll call Web 2.0 crimes, um, online fraud, uh, exploitation of, of, uh, of women, of children, we will continue to see perpetrated in the metaverse. And I think we need to get a whole new generation of, you want to call them cyber cops, virtual security people. Um, they're traditionally called trust and safety, ready to go in the metaverse. You know, that's a very insightful way you said that, that anything in the virtual world can happen as it does in the physical world. I'm not sure really people think that way yet. Some people do, but I think we need to move closer to that. That's a really good way to say it. Uh, Amanda, how can we be proactive in providing a secure space for users in virtual reality? I've been in the space a long time. I had my first computer in 1984, probably before both of you guys were born. And, you know, the Internet and everything was not set up for security. It was set up based on trust. There weren't passwords and things like that in the beginning. Mm -hmm. It was very, very open. That was the whole design. And now we've kind of you know, bolted on security as a second thought. And to your earlier point, Amanda, we've had to kind of think this through 
have people understand that, you know, the challenges are real, right? And we, and we have to kind of learn from our past lessons. So when we're, again, how, how can we be proactive in, in helping provide the space? Well, I'm going to bridge a little bit your first question too here, because I think one of the really interesting things is that the people that are really growing up in VR right now are a generation that has existed with the internet and with very open sharing as part of their sort of cultural norm, right? Whereas uh, previous generations, maybe it, 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 that hasn't been the case, right? Where we're used to keeping certain things to ourselves. And now we're sharing a lot more in social media than we used to. And we're not always thinking really strategically about how is that going to necessarily affect me in the future? Or how could malicious actors misuse that information? So I think in terms of providing a secure space for users and kind of like helping create that rather than relying on the users to, to hold their information back per se, I think we need to look at two things. So one is, as I mentioned earlier, security challenges faced by predecessor analogs, such as early social media, um, Second Life, where many of the capabilities from the VR universe also existed, such as spending and earning real money, selling virtual items and building virtual or building or buying virtual land. Um, second, my, my, my personal kind of, and Scott and I have talked about this, uh, one of my feelings is that we should really be looking forward at potential challenges. And I think a really interesting space is looking at um, experiences that have been anticipated through the great minds of science fiction writers. So it seems like, to me at least, I don't know about you, um, but it seems like sometimes the things that we see in fiction are coming closer to fact, right? And uh, I know that there actually been some criticisms levied in that direction. And so I think we're doing ourselves a disservice if we're not looking to those visions of the future and especially what could go wrong and what were the risks that were anticipated because everything that exists today existed at one time in the imagination of someone else. Well, you know, that's spot on. And all we have to do is open any Philip K. Dick story and we're there, Amanda. Every one of his novels has come true to, to, to a certain degree, no doubt about it. Mr. Scott, how would you add to that? Uh, that's a very proactive uh, position Amanda took. What else could we use to be proactive in, in getting this message home to people? Yeah, being forward-leaning and educating people early on is really important. We, Like Amanda said, we have a generation of people that have grown up in these worlds, right? They're, they're completely digital. Uh, fortunately, and, and I'll take your compliment earlier that uh, I wasn't born uh, around 1984. I'll take it. Um, we'll just leave it at that. But we have, uh, I was fortunate enough to jump to grow up in a kind of an analog world as well. So I know what a phone book is. I know how to rotary dial. Uh, by the way, you can't text with a rotary dial phone. But I also, you know, grew up and, and, and became a, a technology professional and worked in the technology field. So I understand how that works. But we ha now have a generation of people that have only grown up online. They don't know any, any, any other world except for that. And so the challenges that come with that are some of the things that both uh, Amanda and I have seen working in tech. Uh, at Facebook, there were some people that had more challenges talking face-to-face -face or going out and, and being um, proactive or, or going out and, and meeting new people. So we need to be aware that that is the world or that those are the people that will be operating this world here in the future, as well as sensitive not to leave some of our older friends behind. We can't afford it. Right now, I'm, I say this a lot in a lot of podcasts is we are in a crisis. 
that's for sure. I'm not just talking about COVID and coronavirus and, and the war in Ukraine. Those are all our symptoms of kind of a broader concern. But we are, our, our population is coming to a state where we are now going to be losing the, the baby boom generation. And so we, it's, I've always said it's kind of a hands-on, hands-on-deck situation where we need to carefully bring everybody into the this web 3.0 and you don't have to call it the metaverse but it is truly a web 3.0 um, because we don't want to leave them behind we want them to be successful and to operate in in this new world whatever the new turning is this some uh, demographers call it the fourth turning but we need to embrace this and and bring everybody in and get a, you know rising tide raises all boats i hope we can't afford to lose anybody in this transition to keep them safe, happy, and productive in the metaverse or in Web 3.0. Now, as one of the last baby booners, I will say that uh, the Toby Keith song is appropriate. I'm as good once as I ever was. So you won't lose me anytime soon, Mr. Scott, but point well taken, I must say. Now, <laughs> let's get to the secret sauce. I'm good. We, need. we can't afford it. <laughs> <laughs> let's get to uh, the resources needed to effectively secure virtual reality. Again, my earlier comments, you know, I grew up with a 9K modem and a CompuServe way back in the day. I've seen the progression of this exponentially grow. <laughs> really hasn't been security put into anything until recently. By recently, I mean 10 years ago, we started thinking about this, right? What do we need to kind of physically secure this? That's one way. And digitally secure, because you really have to do two things. By physical, I mean educating people, maybe the data centers, maybe bigger controls. And then, of course, virtually inside that space, I think one thing we have to do is help people understand this is not real. It's virtual because, you know, people kind of think those two things blend together. It's a compound, complex sentence, but I know you guys can answer it. So, Mr. Scott, why don't you take this one first? I've always said that um, I try to focus on on things that are, are transmedium, so kinetic to virtual, virtual to kinetic. And, you know, nowadays, all I'm an investigator at heart. You know this, Chuck. All of us are, uh, every investigation that we do involves some kind of virtual uh, evidence, right? So the technology that we've applied to those virtual crime scenes, if you will, or the virtual evidence collection techniques are all still um, required and, and will need to be enhanced even more. And I'll give you an example because I want to hear Amanda's thoughts on this as well, but uh the collection of video evidence for a crime. I have, you know, half a dozen cameras around my house that are recording 24-7 and they have their 4K and all these things. Well, that eats up a ton of bandwidth. So when uh, my police department, my city came to me recently and, and needed uh, video evidence for a crime, well, I was uploading uh, gigabytes and gigabytes of evidence into evidence.com which they used to, to sort this evidence. And what I knew was they were not going to be able to watch every single type of video. And I felt bad because they asked for like a lot and I gave them a lot, wanted them to have more than, than uh, not, but we're going to have to apply artificial intelligence to these evidence collections, the, the evidence that we are collecting. This is very similar to what we have to do to keep people safe in the metaverse. Think about the virtual traffic cop. Can we afford for that person, that to be a human, or should that be a bot to some extent? And a lot of people, and Amanda knows this very well, uh, the application of artificial intelligence or bots or whatever you want to call it in uh, restricting certain types of content or certain types of activities 
is an imperative because again, like I said earlier, we don't have the people that can can do these jobs uh, on mass like we need them to. So we got to merge. Uh, we got to become that cyborg, if you will, to go back to Philip K. Dick. Ms. Amanda, your thoughts? Yeah, absolutely. I'm really glad Scott talked about this idea of like, should the virtual traffic cop be a machine or should he be a person? And how do we have all of the sort of people power required to be able to review all of these, uh, all of these interactions? And so I, I think there's a combination of things. So I, I kind of wrote down some notes here um, as Scott was talking and in sort of preparation for this. And I think there's kind of four big things. So Scott's example about using his security cameras is very reactive, right? Like collecting evidence after the fact is very reactive, right? And so I think we need a balance between both proactive methods, such as potentially, you know, creating a level of like filtering or friction or um, detection or assessment at the at sort of the entrance to the world to determine like, is this user um, authentic? Is this is this uh, is this user maybe somebody who has had a history, like a bad history of engaging in malicious activity and how can we prevent them proactively from getting into a world? Um, I'm just sort of spitballing here, but think of maybe like a, a metaverse Interpol, right? Because there's lots of different worlds within broadly VR and, and sort of the metaverse and lots of different companies with um that likely is going to have different rules of engagement and different sort of terms and conditions for entering that world. Um, so we need those proactive methods, but I think also the reactive, uh, the reactive methods. How are we going to store all that data, as Scott said? Um, how are we even going to access that data once it is stored? Um, you know, you can have all the data in the world. If you can't find it, that's not super helpful. And then finding that balance between those bots or machine interventions and human interventions, because machines do make mistakes. And um, and so we want to make sure, much like our, poli our, our police officers and investigators do, we want to find the, the, the fine line between um, being able to enforce fairly, but also not cause so much friction that um, that you know, legitimate people who are not malicious actors don't want to get engaged, right? I like to think about, um, and, our, and our friend um, Carlos would probably speak to this if he were here, but uh, I like to think about like security at Disney, or I like to think about like the TSA, right? You can, you can dial up TSA to the point where they're doing um, very intimate exams, right? But your lines would take forever and people would maybe be put off of flying. Um, so we try and find that happy medium of, okay, how do we cause enough friction that we're at least deterring some uh, some activity and, and giving a, a semblance of security um, versus, uh, you know, making it kind of so difficult to get in that legitimate actors can't get in. Amanda Lewis, Scott Walker, their lecture, What Does Trust and Safety in Virtual Reality Mean?, it's Tuesday, September 13th. Ms. Amanda, Mr. Scott, thanks so much for joining us. Good stuff, my friends. Very thoughtful and uh, requires deep, deep consideration of many issues here. But I'm glad you guys are on it because it is starting the dialogue that is going to determine where we go with this in the next five to 10 years. Good luck at your lecture, GSX, and uh, stop by the booth and uh, let's meet in person. Will do. Looking forward to awesome. it. Thanks, Chuck. This episode of Security Management Highlights is brought to you by 
Data Miner, providing the fastest, most relevant alerts on emerging risks across the world. Visualize real-time information at the level and specificity needed to quickly contextualize, understand, and respond to high-impact events as they unfold with Dataminer Plus's new advanced geo-visualization capabilities. Learn more and book a demo for yourself at dataminer.com, D-A-T-A-M-I-N-R.com. And visit Dataminer on the floor at GSX at booth 3825.